Hi there, I'm Austin Hopkins. And I'm Haley Robinson. And this is the Wild Idaho Podcast, coming to you from the Idaho Conservation League. The Idaho Conservation League is Idaho's leading voice for conservation, protecting the air you breathe, the water you drink, and the land you love. Each month, we'll be exploring a new topic or current event that impacts the environment in Idaho. Join us to learn about the work that we're doing and how you can get involved. Thanks for listening. So, welcome everyone to another Wild Idaho Podcast. I am joined, as always, by... My co-host, Haley Robinson. Hi, Haley. Hi, Austin. How's it going? Good. Um, we also have ICL's current fellow, Dagny Deutschman, joining us. Hi, Austin and Haley. And we are joined with, as I just noted uh, before this episode started recording, our most famous guest to date, uh, Sarah Dant with Weber State. Uh, I'm pronouncing that correctly? You are. Thank you very much. Nice. And you are a professor and the chair of the history department at Weber State. Is that yes, correct? Yes, I am. Thank okay. you. And your work is on a, you do in kind of environmental history of the West. Is that is that kind of a fair summation of, of your research? Absolutely. Okay. I, uh, I grew up here in the West, and so uh, understanding more about the world around me and, and the places I grew up in was really kind of a natural thing for me. Nice. That's great. Well, we're really excited to have you on. Well, thank you. We, I wish our podcast episodes were longer because we have so much to talk to you about, so we're going to jump right into it. Yeah, I would love to start out um, with just a question of kind of like how you got involved in your work. What started it out, what spurred it, and what got you interested in the work that you're doing now? So I grew up in the Phoenix area and uh, was always in love with the desert um, and went to school at Northern Arizona for my undergrad. And then I did a, a master's degree in American studies at Washington State and was had one of those crises that we all do, which is, oh my gosh, now what do I do? And I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I got a teaching job at a two-year school in Utah, in Price, Utah, College of Eastern Utah. And one of the advantages I had was that I got to teach an environmental studies class. It had a classroom component where we did some readings, but then we took students out camping and backpacking and river running all over Utah. And there was nothing that cemented my love for the outdoors and wanting to understand more about how some of these places that I really valued had come to be protected or not protected. So when I went back to graduate school, that was kind of my entree into getting involved in environmental history. Awesome. Um, I know that your undergraduate was in communicate or journalism and public relations, um, and a lot of you know teaching is involved heavily in communications. Uh, as an advocacy organization, we spend a lot of time focusing on how to communicate with our members about the work we're doing, how to communicate with our supporters about what we're doing, um, and I'm wondering if you have any like thoughts about kind of the importance of the importance in the ways in which you can take big lofty concepts about environmental work and translate them and get them get people excited and engaged about them. So one thing I would certainly say is that, you know, I ended up as an environmental historian and with my undergraduate degree, it's the classic lesson. You don't have to decide what you want to be uh, when you're an undergraduate. You should shop a lot. But one of the things that really taught me, and I think it's informed everything I've done since, is that if you can find the common ground that people have, and usually that's pretty extensive if you work at it, if you can find a common ground, you can talk to anyone about anything. Um, if you've done your homework and you know what others are interested in or where their concerns lie so that you can be empathetic to them, but you can also talk about here's what 
I'm interested in and how that fits with what you're interested in, I've found that's probably the most compelling way to, to get people to begin to think about, here's a way for us to come together. Because that's I'm all about trying to find consensus, promoting bipartisanism, and the common ground thing to me is, is essential in that. That's really cool, kind of focusing on the things that people have in common instead of the things that they have different first, building those bridges. That's yeah, awesome. and you know, I think that was one of the things that attracted me to Frank Church. He was the subject of my dissertation as a, a doctoral student, and I was so impressed that here was a guy from a state that had this really schizophrenic constituency, people who were natural resource users, people who were environmental advocates, and yet he could manage to bring them together. I think one of the most compelling examples was in the creation of the Gospel Hump Wilderness Area. He actually brought together uh, chambers of commerce, forest service people, the Sierra Club, and a variety of other interest, uh, natural resource interest uh, people, cattle ranchers, and he told them, I would like to create a wilderness area. I want you to figure out what the boundaries should be. And initially these people all said, I can't sit in the same room with this guy or mm -hmm. that guy. But they all began to discover as he said, well, let's look at the, let's let's start by looking at the maps. And what they began to realize was, okay, you know, that area right there is, you're right, that is better for timber harvest and it isn't essential to the wilderness area. And that area right there, wow, that would be really fragile. We don't really need it for extraction. So let's put that in. And in the process, they all signed off on this agreement. They were, they were all passionate defenders of this agreement. And out of that, we got the Gospel Hump Wilderness area. And it was, and some of those people remain friends today, even though they often line up very politically uh, opposite of one another. That's awesome. What a cool story. Hi, yeah, this is, um, we're already off track, but I think this is like pertinent <laughs> for the conversation. Um, I think that example of, of Frank Church, his the way of going about doing things and, and what you talked about, that consensus building, do you see that happening today? I mean, as, as in, I, I'm a pretty informed outside observer with, with state and federal politics, and I don't feel like I see that consensus building so much right now. And, you know, I'm just curious, what lessons through your research and your, your perspective with history, what lessons have been dropped that we're not doing anymore that we should be doing um, that that you saw Frank Church do? Frank Church was a real statesman, and I feel like, as you do, that we're a little short on statesmen and stateswomen at, at, at this point in time. And some, some of it is because, you know, a lot of people don't realize that environmentalism didn't used to be such a politically polarizing issue. Mm -hmm. We look at something like the controversial wilderness uh, proposals today. When the Wilderness Act passed in 1964, it had four no votes. Four, that's it. Uh, the very controversial endangered species law, three no votes in the Senate. That's it. So we're not talking about huge controversies then. There's support on both sides of the aisle for legislation that could, um, that could promote good stewardship. But we've drifted away from that into this sort of partisan politics where everyone goes into their corner and compromise becomes a dirty word. It it's, shows weakness. Consensus is somehow weakness. And, 
And to me, the, one of the real powerful lessons of history, in fact, I talk about this even in my um, survey classes at Weber State, is that the founding of our government is in some ways really remarkable because it took very conflicting ideas like those of Jefferson and Hamilton and made conflict the foundation of our strength. That what we were supposed to do as a country was work toward what was ultimately best for all of the people. And that means sometimes you don't get everything you want, but that's not how our government is supposed to work. One group gets everything and the other group, too bad, you guys are the minority, so you lose. And to me, that that's one of the really powerful lessons of history that it would be wise to, to draw upon. And it's one of the things I find really compelling about Frank Church is that he had that ability, and it's one of the reasons I like to talk about him, because I think he's a good model. And here in Idaho, I think you have someone who's trying to emulate that in Mike Simpson. I don't necessarily agree with all of his politics, but that guy is doing more to try to bring together disparate groups of people and get them to find their common ground than a lot of others that I've seen. And to me, that's a really positive example that Idaho can show to the rest of the nation. Hmm. Um, you recently did a podcast interview with Mountain Prairie Podcast, mm -hmm. um, which I listened to and was interested um, when you were talking about kind of the future generation that you're seeing in classes coming up. Um, and I think you talked about their, some of their strengths being kind of their comfortable, comfortableness with fluidity. So millennials are more, millennials and generations behind them are more fluid with the ideas of uh, gender or, um, I, I'm trying to think of some of the other examples that you used, but they're, they're more comfortable in kind of the gray areas. Mm -hmm. And their weaknesses, you said, they don't vote. I'm wondering kind of where they fall in your perception on what you were just touching on, kind of this bipartisan, um, their comfort with talking to people uh, who have different ideas than them. You know, it's interesting to me because in some ways I think <clears throat> social media has allowed people to talk to one another um, with the, the buffer of a device about things they normally wouldn't, but at the same time it also, the anonymity of it can allow us to vent our ugliest uh, thoughts and sentiments. And so I think in, in some ways this generation has um, real challenges ahead of them because they're the ones who are going to experience most directly the consequences of the choices that we're making about the environment right now. And I think they're not sure how at this point yet they can effectively um, make their voice heard. Uh, a lot of my students tell me that the reason they don't vote is because their vote doesn't matter. They don't think their vote matters. And many of them simply don't understand how our political system works. That's a failing on our part. We need to be more communicative about here's, here's how you get things done. Here's how you get involved. I have seen a lot of them, though, being willing to get involved more locally. Um, now, as a college student, it's much more typical for you to have to do an internship. Mm -hmm. And that really engages students. And many of them end up following up with, with a job doing something like what they did um, on their internship. And so I would think that, that getting organizations like Idaho Conservation League involved with, let's get some interns in here. Let's get people understanding, here's what we do. Here's how we bring about change. I think a lot of that has to be modeled 
Um, and, and we need to do a better job of that, not just telling people, but actually showing them, here's, here's how to make a difference. Personal anecdote, I was actually an intern for the Idaho Conservation League before I started working See? here, so... Thank you. The model <laughs> works. <laughs> the model works, yes, and, and you can send me a check later. <laughs> um, man, this is like, I, there's so much to unpack here. Um, yeah, I, well, we could always do part two. That, yes, yeah, true. Yeah, you're coming back next week, right? Um, you know, I'm curious, again, I, I, I'm fascinated with historians because I think there's so much about history that... Um, it's, it, we suffer from this at ICL. We, we work hard on something and then we, you know, we, we get to the finish line and then we're immediately looking at the next thing and we're not looking back. And I think especially in times like these, it's so important to look back and reflect on, on what was done, you know, how far did we get from our starting point? Um, so I'm just fascinated with this idea of history. And one of the questions I have, especially related to climate change, and, and you mentioned that uh, younger generations, they're going to bear the brunt of of the decisions being made today, we keep talking about climate change and like in 20 years, it's going to be bad in 30 years. It's going to be really bad in 40 years. It's going to be unbearable is do we need to communicate that differently in a sense that saying it's not 20 years, it's today, you know, wildfires are bad today. Air quality is bad today. Droughts are bad today. Or, you know, is there still value talking about the future while in the present and, and how do we get people more, how do we like get the urgency um, going? And, and is there any lessons from from historical campaigns where they somehow took a far off threat and made it like an urgent issue in the, like today in their given time? Well, I think one of the challenges for the environmental movement and other organizations face this too is that the way to get people energized, the way to get them to send in money or to to vote for you is to do a version of the sky is falling. But at some point, we all get overwhelmed and numbed to that idea that the sky is falling. And so if you keep hearing, oh my gosh, the world is gonna end and the world is going to end, it becomes it becomes something that's not relatable to. You think it's so big, I can't I can't make a difference. And and so you just tune it out and my concern is that as we talk about climate change having disastrous consequences 20, 30, 50 years out, the time to deal with that is now, but people are often really reluctant to change their behavior unless they perceive that it's going to benefit them in some way. And so I, one of the things I talk about in my book is the idea that we live at the vanguard really of climate change because it's so arid in the West. We don't have a margin for error like some wetter parts of the United States or the rest of the world does. We're going to see those temperature changes, those more extreme weather events have really significant consequences very quickly. And rather than having some generic climate change is going to be a disaster, that sort of thing, I think a much more effective communication is going to be, here's a concern, specific concern, and here's what to do about that. I mean, so I, I've been, I get asked quite often, if I could do one thing, what would it be? And um, overwhelmingly, the answer to that uh, I've discovered is drive a more fuel efficient automobile. It's the one thing you can do. Telling people that, um, 
telling people that we need to think about um, zeroscaping your yard. Think of it, giving them some specific, here's, here's the concern and here's how you as an individual can make a difference. Are you going to end climate change? No, you're not. But you can do your part. And if we all do our part, then that's really how we make the kinds of change that will ultimately come, hopefully not come 20 to 30 years from now. But, but making people understand that what they do now is what's going to affect that and here's how to deal with that. Here's, here's some solutions to the problem, not just the sky is falling. I really like that point too because I wonder if you've observed the um, the sky is falling mentality kind of breeds some amount of um, apathy or complacency mm-hmm. where like well the sky is falling so a piece of garbage on the ground is not going to change that or you know the sky is falling so I may as well take the longest shower that I want to because pff, it's gonna all go to hell in a handbasket anyway. Right. Um. So how and how do you kind of respond? I think you've touched on this a little bit to the people who say you know, well my one thing is not going to make a big impact. So there's an idea I use in my book, and I like to use it in class too, called the tragedy of the commons. It was an idea from uh, an ecologist named Garrett Hardin in in the 1960s. And the analogy he uses is a a grazing commons around a town. And he says, you know, if everyone in the town has a single cow that they put out on the commons, it's sustainable because the cows don't degrade the commons, everyone gets enough to get by. But the problem comes when one of the individuals says, well, I'm going to put two cows on the commons because then I'm going to get twice as much of a return. And if the one person does that, puts an extra cow on, the effect on the commons is going to be negligible. But when everyone acts in their own self-interest, then we have, and this is where he comes up with this idea of the tragedy, we have the tragedy of the degradation of, of a common resource. And we see this in the West a lot because our resources are limited, clean air, clean water, water just generally, people tend to have this use it or lose it mentality. I'm gonna get mine so that someone else doesn't get it first. and. It can be really uh, frustrating to think, well, if I don't get mine, then someone else will, and that's not fair, and I don't like that. But I I really think, and again, history has a good uh, lesson here, that when we look even at the the founding fathers of the country, or uh, if we can look at other groups that lived much more communally minded, thinking about the good of the community rather than just your own personal good, is what I hope, and I, you know, coined the phrase in my book, will lead to a triumph of the commons, where everyone acting in the interest of the best interest of the community does ultimately bring about real change, and I think that's certainly possible. Great. I um, we we should have mentioned this way earlier, but uh, we we've talked about your book a, a number of times now, and um, and that's that's losing Eden is the title of that mm-hmm. book. Um, and you had a couple minutes ago, you made the statement that in the West, especially with climate change, we don't have this margin, this buffer to, to kind of deal with climate change. And um, as an Idahoan, how should we be thinking about our relationship with, with our state and our natural resources and this concept of Idaho as an, as an Eden? Is, um, this is kind of a leading question, I realize. <laughs> I but, appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. 
Well, so the title of my book is actually a, a double entendre. It, the title was suggested by a, a reader of my manuscript, and I hated it. I thought, oh, that's a terrible title, because I don't want us to have some declensionist narrative of uh, we're all going to blow up, dry up and blow away. Um, but I went for a run up on the trails of, of the Wasatch, and I realized, no, no, that's exactly what I want to say, because... I don't, the West has been inhabited and altered and managed by people for tens of thousands of years. There is no pristine Eden to get back to unless we all drink the Kool-Aid and disappear, and that's not going to happen. So the idea that I think needs to be better communicated is that we humans are part of the natural world and we need to figure out a way to live much more sustainably in it. We need to, and this is the double entendre, we need to lose this idea of Eden and think about a sustainable relationship with our natural environment. And so that means that that we do have to harvest trees, we have to uh, you know, mine minerals, we all want to live in a house and, and have uh, heat in the winter, especially when it's chilly out, um, and we want to we want to be cool in the summer, but how can we do that far more thoughtfully and sustainably? And Idaho is, is a great example of that. It's a, a state that's seen its population expand pretty significantly, yet um, relative to the rest of, uh, of some of the West, it has a lot of, of rural, um, remote charm to it. There's a lot of beautiful open space. Finding the balance between urbanization, settlement, and the needs of people, and the protection of ecosystems, particularly fragile ecosystems in an arid environment, is, is essential. And that's what people need to want to have happen around them and they need to to support those who are advocating those ideas of sustainability get out and vote for those kinds of people if that's what you're into you know run for office um, but definitely i think thinking about how we manage our relationship with nature for the long term is going to be key um well we we could dive into so many of these topics so much deeper. Um, unfortunately, we got to keep you to a tight time schedule. Um, I do want to take this opportunity to note that um, although the Wild Idaho conversation is ending, you are here in about an hour and a half going to be speaking at the Idaho Environmental Forum. Um, on Give us a, a quick update uh, on what you'll be speaking about there. And I just want to let folks know that the, your your presentation will also be recorded. So if, if they're into a podcast binge, um, <laughs> listen to the Wild Idaho podcast, and then they can jump straight into Idaho Environmental Forums, uh, your presentation, which you're going to give here in a couple hours. So um, yeah, just if you want to give listeners a quick update on what you'll be talking about. Sure. There. So this is the 50th anniversary of the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act, 1968. And a lot of people know about Wild and Scenic Rivers. Uh, a lot of people uh, float. Wild and Scenic Rivers, uh, the Middle Fork Salmon being one of the superlative examples of that. And so a lot of people are very familiar with that. What they don't realize is that the genesis for that act is right here in Idaho. And it's Frank Church. It's Frank Church who started out as a freshman senator advocating a great big dam in Hell's Canyon that he thought the federal government should build. 
He thought that it was the way for Idaho to to come into its economic fluorescence. And what he discovered is that as he got more involved at the national level, particularly on the Senate Interior Committee, with things like the Wilderness Act, which he actually championed, he was the floor manager for that, and other pieces of legislation that, wait a minute, maybe, maybe the best dam is no dam. And he was very concerned that the dam proposals for the Snake in Hills Canyon included one proposal that would have uh, been just below the confluence of the Salmon and the Snake, and it therefore would have blocked the Salmon River, which was at the time home to about 30% of the total anadromous fish spawn in the entire Columbia River system. And for Church, that was a price he was simply not willing to pay. And so he started with a, a Salmon River um, preservation bill that was just to block dams on the Salmon River, and that evolved ultimately into what became the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act of 1968. And as of August of this year, it protects more than 12,000 miles of river on about 200, more than 200 rivers in 40 different states and in Puerto Rico, which seems really impressive until you realize that that's like less than a quarter of 1% of the entire river mileage in the country. And by comparison, there are 75,000 major dams in this country that have altered more than 600,000 miles of river. So yay for wild rivers, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, let's, let's see if we can't find some more. So on that note, um, I'm hoping we can turn the tides to end on maybe a positive sure. message of, yeah. uh, of kind of like hope and where we can go in the future. Um, and I know you've mentioned before we started recording that you get asked this question a lot, but I'd uh, love to hear um, how you remain positive, especially in times of, you know, political difficulties um, and what you kind of see as ways that people can feel like they're contributing to a better future for the environment in the United States. I absolutely believe that that there's reason to be hopeful. Concerned, yes, but hopeful, too. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this. Um, and I think that that people can despair if they want about what's happening at the national level, but the national level has never really been where the most significant change can happen. Um, where I see people making remarkable progress is more at the local level. Getting behind organizations like the Idaho Conservation League, but also finding something that they're passionate about. People care about what they know. And so my sort of mission is to get people to find something they really care about and then get involved. Do you like a particular kind of animal? Then figure out who's championing that animal and, and help them out. Uh, maybe it just means sending them a check, but maybe it means you volunteer or you uh, hand out pamphlets. If you're passionate about a particular stretch of river, uh, see who's managing that river. See if you can't get involved. Uh, obviously, go to the polls and vote um, anytime you can to support what you're passionate about. But, but I think the real opportunity, the real triumph of the commons can come when people get involved locally and they can make a real difference. And they can see that happen in their own lifetime. 
And that's the most exciting and rewarding thing because once they do that, uh, you know, it's addicting. You, you see something good happen, you want something else good to happen, and you bring your friends along and you get them involved. And if you have children, you, you raise them with those kinds of values. To me, that's where the future is. And, and to me, I think it's, it's a very bright and hopeful one. I love that statement, concerned but hopeful, or, mm-hmm. or concerned but optimistic. You mm-hmm. know, I think it really captures, you got to pay attention, you got to be involved and aware of what's going on, but there's there's no reason to lose optimism or lose hope. No. So that's fantastic. No, lose Eden, but not yeah, optimism. Yeah. <laughs> Title of this podcast, Lose Eden, but not optimism. Yeah, there it. we go. Perfect. Um, well, this has been fantastic. I, I mean, we, we've talked about dams, we've talked about climate change, talked about wild and sink rivers, we've talked about the arid west you are a breath of knowledge so thank you so much for carving out time to come and uh and be on our podcast we really appreciate it oh it's my pleasure thanks for having me um with that we want to thank everyone for listening uh this podcast is brought to you guys by you our members of the idaho conservation league so if you're a member thank you very much if you're not a member check us out idahoconservation.org and join our community we'd love to have you And if you are enjoying listening to the Wild Idaho podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Um, Give us some ideas of other topics you'd like us to cover. Share share this podcast with your friends. Um, And yeah, we'd love to know what you think. Cool. So with that, we'll see you guys next time.